Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama part illegal immigrants. Well, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. I'm Drew Sheldrick, and this week we're looking at political polling, or more pointedly, what's gone wrong with it, after a series of big misses over the past few years. Joining me today is Dr Sean Ratcliffe. Sean is a lecturer in public opinion and political strategy and manages the United States Studies Centre's polling partnership with market research and data analytics firm YouGov. Before we get his opinion on what's gone wrong with political prognostication, let's have a little listen to some of the headaches the subject has caused politicians and the voting party. Public in recent years. Most of the polls, although we're, we're, we're really scanning this right now for breaking news, most of the polls have said it's starting to lean toward the stay vote, stay with the European Union. The official results are in. The people of Britain have spoken, voting for a British exit, dubbed Brexit, with almost 52% of the votes choosing to leave the 28-member European Union. Clinton is leading Donald Trump nationally by nine points, 52 to 43. Um, and here we are with Donald Trump over your shoulder, that big sign. Okay, in their the defense, though, they refused to see it. So did we. Look at the polls. Explain that. The polls are absolutely mysterious. Why? Well, there are, uh, I'm not sure I know the answer why. Let's, and, and frankly, I think there's a lot of people already speculating as to why, and my suspicions is, is that they are rushing to judgment. Some of the colleagues in the polling industry are already sort of almost making excuses. Well, it's all within the margin of error. Anybody who says that, I think, is fully kidding themselves. Dr. Sean Ratcliffe, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Drew. Uh, the Australian federal election in May was seemingly the latest example of public polling being unable to properly predict voter intention on election day. Uh, this follows a lot of criticism of the projections before Donald Trump's election in 2016 and the Brexit vote shortly before that. What, what's happening here, Sean? Are, are we really seeing the mass failure of political polling around the world? Uh, no. So... To start with, polling has actually become a little bit more accurate in recent decades really? than it had been in the past. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, surprises a lot of people when yes. they first see that. <laughs> um, and, and we have to differentiate the problems with those three examples. So the Australian example was a bigger polling fail. The error for most pollsters was quite large. The US and Brexit uh, misses, though, were roughly the standard size of the error we see in national polling. So uh, on the popular vote for the national the, well, the national popular vote in the United States, uh, the average error was about 2%. Okay. And it was a very similar error size in Brexit. And that's about what we've seen as an average in recent decades in polling around the world. Okay. So, so normally we'd expect polls to be off by about 2%. Uh, not a problem unless it's a close election. Yeah. Uh, Brexit was a close election. So 2% was enough to go from a, a, a narrow win to a narrow loss. Right. So it looked like a big fail, but it was a standard size fail. Polling is but never- was it a fa- But it was a failure of all sort of poll- polls, yep. wasn't it? I mean, isn't that the, the, the issue here? That it's at all polls where if it was 2% or whatever, they all failed. Yeah, and that's what we always see. We always see the, well, not always, but on average, polls are off by one or 2% normally. Okay. Um, and it varies from country to country, election to election, but the average in recent decades has been around 2%. Um, and, and then we have to remember that polling 
is an estimate. It's a, it's a, uses a sample drawn from the population and there's always going to be error. If, if the pollsters get it spot on one election, that's great, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't expect that every election. So assuming when we see a poll that this is the truth and I should expect the election result to be exactly what the poll is telling me and then being surprised when it's not, it means you're, you're misreading the poll. Um, surveys don't work like that. There, there is error there and, and we should expect there to be error and we should be happily surprised when there's no error. Uh, and if there's one or two, maybe even 3% error, you know that, that shouldn't surprise us too much. Um, the only problem is obviously when the error is on the wrong side yeah. of the result. Yeah. If the error is on the correct side of the result, which it often is, uh, it, it doesn't end up mattering that much. It's the, the result was predicted correctly. Unfortunately, if you predict 51% for a party or, or an outcome in a referendum and it gets 49%, the problem is then your error is on the wrong side of the result and you yeah. look terrible. Yeah. Uh, so Brexit, the error was about normal. It's just it was a very close election. So um, it looked bad for most pollsters. Uh, the U.S. presidential election was slightly different. The national, the estimate for the national popular vote was about right. Uh, the most pollsters predicted Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote, yep. and she did. Yep. Uh, the average error rate was once again about 2%, overestimated Hillary's popular vote slightly, but she still did win the popular vote quite comfortably. Uh, the problem was that the American presidential election isn't decided on the popular vote. Yeah. It's decided on the Electoral College, and really that's it's a winner-takes-all state-by-state race. So you can win a majority of the vote, but if you win a majority of the vote largely because you won big states like Illinois, New York, California uh, by a lot, which Hillary did, but you lose a lot of small states by less, which Hillary also did, you can win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College. Um, So pollsters got it right at the national level, more or less. There was some error, but it was error... Within, with within a still, margin. Within yeah. a margin and yeah. still predicting the correct outcome on the popular vote. The problem was at the state level. And really it was a couple of p- states in particular. So uh, Wisconsin. Rust Belt yeah, of states. Yeah. So Wisconsin and Michigan, which are in the in the Midwest, they're, they're as you said, Rust Belt states. Um, and people didn't think that'd be competitive. They thought Hillary would win them easily, as Democratic presidents have done for the last few decades. Uh, so no one was expecting them to be tight. It seems so, like a similar issue uh, in the Australian election as well recently. I mean, was anyone really thinking that Queensland was going to swing quite so hard as it did? It seemed to be these misses of, of areas where pollsters weren't even sort of focusing on on measuring voter sort of dissent or... I think if people didn't were overly surprised by Queensland, it means they weren't looking at history. So the difference between Queensland and, say, Michigan or Wisconsin is that Queensland has been pretty reliable for the coalition for 70 years. Uh, The coalition almost always does very well in Queensland. Uh, 16, they did a bit worse than normal. And really, this was a return to the normal, more or less, for Queensland, Um, or even a return to a trend where it's moving from being solidly coalition to even more solidly coalition. Uh, The difference with Michigan and Wisconsin was they've been democratic since the late 80s or so, early 90s. I don't think Republicans won those states since 1988 when George Bush Sr. won them. Uh, So people didn't think that they were competitive for for Donald Trump. And so there weren't many surveys run in those states. So when people were looking at not just the national popular vote, but who's going to win each state, which means who wins the Electoral College, there weren't many surveys being run in those states and the surveys that were run were often poorer quality with smaller sample sizes and they were very wrong. They were off by a lot. Uh, Similar issue in Pennsylvania. I think there was a bit more polling there, but maybe still not enough. So places like Florida and Ohio, which are also key swing states but have been 
consistently swing states for a couple of decades now, uh, there was a lot of surveys and people knew they were tight and people knew that there were, there's a reasonable possibility that Donald Trump would win those two states. But Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, no one seriously thought Donald Trump had a, ser- a, a significant chance of winning those states. Yeah. There wasn't enough data on them. So when people were making predictions, who's going to win each state? They were often giving those win those states to Hillary Clinton. So when you saw these high probabilities that Hillary Clinton would win the election, it wasn't just based on her lead in the popular vote. It was based on an assumption, but which wasn't backed up necessarily by very high quality data, that she would win those three states. And what happened was what polls were run in those states were quite wrong. Donald Trump did much better in those three states than was expected. And that gave him the Electoral College win. We'll get back to the United States in just a moment. I just wanted to focus a little bit on uh, the Australian election. Yep. So you coordinated the uh, Cooperative Australian Election Survey this year during April and May, which surveyed more than 10,000 Australian respondents. Can you explain a little bit about that study and what you were trying to find there? Yeah, so this was a study we ran with a number of academics at several universities. So so there were researchers here at the University of Sydney and at the US Studies Centre. There uh, were academics at the University of Melbourne, ANU, uh, Macquarie and the Australian Catholic University, and hopefully I haven't forgotten anyone, they'll <laughs> yeah, be very right. insulted. Um, and, and together we, we pulled resources to run this very large survey uh, with, with a lot of generous help from YouGov Galaxy as well to collect what I think is probably the largest academic election study run at an Australian election. That's a huge pool of people. Yeah, 10, 000, so some questions we had 10,000 respondents. Um, that wasn't the entire sample. Didn't um, or not, not everyone got Sorry, not everyone got every question, but uh, some questions were asked of like vote intention and key demographics. Uh, we, we have a sample of 10,000. Other questions, 7,000. And then some questions were just asked to smaller groups of one or 2,000 respondents. So yeah. it's a big 20-minute uh, survey at its largest part. And uh, it asks questions from, from yeah, demographics so we can study small groups like um, the LGBTIQ community, which yep. uh, you often have trouble with a standard sample size of getting enough respondents uh, to, you know, do a reasonable study. Sure. Uh, here we've got a, because we've got 10,000 respondents, 7,000, I think, for the for the for that question. Um, we, we've got a large enough sample that we can actually look at, well, how do different groups vote? Uh, same with um, different ancestry groups, um, economics differences. So, for instance, how do tenants of public housing vote compared right. okay. to people that own their own home outright? Yep. Um, these groups, you know, public housing is only a few percent of the population. Often that's quite a different thing to get, a difficult thing to get yeah, when sure. you've only got one or 2,000 respondents. Yep. When you've got 10,000, you've got, you know, five, six, seven hundred respondents in that group. So you start to get to a large enough size where you can start to do some good high quality academic research of groups of voters that have often been understudied because they're difficult to reach because they're a small size. Have you done much analysis of that data so far? Is there any sort of takeaways that you've got at the moment? Uh, only a little bit. Yeah. Um, we only just got the data recently because yep. obviously the election yeah, is sure. only uh, a couple of weeks old. Yeah. Uh, but but luckily for us, we did get the data right after the election. So just over a week after the election, all the data was available to all the researchers, which is also a very fast turnaround for an election study. Uh, we've started to analyse it. Uh, different groups are off doing their thing. Uh, one thing we did look at was the claim, or I've looked at is the claim uh, made by some commentators that 
one of the reasons the coalition won was because it received um, a disproportionate vote from the working class or battlers or right. ordinary voters, however you want to describe yeah. them. Traditionally, Labor voters, one yeah, would say, historically. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there's been some claims made that Scott Morrison was able to win the support of, of you know, outer suburban working class voters and they've abandoned the Labor Party because they're the party of the inner city elite. Almost like the, the Rust quiet. Belt we're kind of almost yeah, talking about again. Yeah, so, so this sort of parallel with Donald Trump's election. Yeah. And so I've already done some analysis to, to, to test that theory because I, I, I was sceptical that it was correct. So I've looked at um, how Australian voters voted this election based on uh, things like their income, their occupation, uh, whether or not they receive things like disability benefits, own their own business. Um, so this argument, oh, blue-collar voters went and voted for the coalition, which maybe that's true. Um, it's a bit more complex than that. Uh, with the idea that, you know, the collar, the colour of your collar being the most important thing is wrong, right? Like, so if you're a plumber, um, but you're, you own your own business, you've got employees and you've got a very high income, like say over $200,000 a year, um, you're not working class. You're a capitalist. You employ people. You earn money off a business you own. You're not just selling your labour. Yeah. You know, you're 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 investing capital and you're receiving income from it. Um, so you need to be you need to look at some, this a little a little bit more of a complex way. It's it's an intersection between the resources you have access to, uh, your social networks, and um, your relationship with capital. So so looking at an interaction between those things, I find that the the people that were most likely to vote for the coalition were really high-income earners that own their own business. And low-income employees, even blue-collar employees, were much less likely to vote for the coalition. You mentioned before that uh, in terms of sort of the polling misses out of uh, Britain, Australia, the United States, that the Australian miss was quite uh, sort of larger than the other two. Um, one of the things that Australian pollsters used to say in the face of criticism of uh, polling in places like the US was that it was a lot easier to sort of gauge voter sentiment here because voting was compulsory. Um, obviously, it's not um, sort of compulsory for American and British um, voters. So uh, does the most recent federal election mean that we can no longer be confident that we're any different to the rest of the world when these polling failures happen? I wouldn't judge the quality of Australian polling on one election. Uh, historically, we have been very accurate. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the industry here has done a very good job historically. Uh, so I don't think we can necessarily take one miss as proof that there's a fundamental problem. Now, I'm not saying the industry should be complacent. Uh, and I know I've spoken to people in the polling industry here in Australia, and they are taking this very seriously, and they're trying to work out why they made a mistake. Um, was it just something specific to this election, certain groups moving that they didn't pick up? Uh, one theory might be that uh, there was a political difference that doesn't normally exist between highly engaged and disengaged voters, with highly engaged voters also more likely to answer surveys right. if they're going to vote differently to disengaged voters that are hard to reach. Uh, in a survey, then your results are going to be off. Um, and now it's hard to actually work out: Are we reaching engage, engaged and disengaged voters at a rate different to their to their existence in the population? So maybe there was some difference between engaged and disengaged voters that um, that the, the polls didn't pick up. That's one possibility. It could also be that um, non-response bias is getting worse. So, so there are certain groups that just do not answer surveys, and they're very hard to get to respond to polls. The, the lower that non-response, the, the response rate gets, 
the worse non-response bias becomes and the harder it is to get a good sample. It's going to have an effect though, right? Because Australia surely is a more poll-driven political system than the United States and uh, the United Kingdom. You think about the role of news poll, you know, sort of fortnightly in, you know, sort of the leadership dramas of the last couple of years in regards to policy formulation. I mean, this, I know you said this is one miss, but it has to have an effect on on politics here, right? Yeah. I I mean, I think it would be a great thing if this made the political class, and, and, and by that I mean politicians and also political journalists yeah. in the press gallery, sit back and realise that, that surveys are an estimate of public opinion at a given time. Uh, John Howard was behind in news polls right throughout his career. Yeah. Uh, that didn't stop him from winning election after election. And to base your decisions on policy and leadership on, on, a, on a few surveys is, I think, poor is, is, is a poor strategy, right? And, and journalists too. I mean, journalists shouldn't rely just on, you know, preferred prime minister and two-party preferred to drive their commentary. We should use surveys, but we should use them wisely. And relying on small movements in two-party preferred or preferred prime minister, which are often noise, not meaningful information, um, is a mistake. And I agree that, especially in the last couple of decades, and I think as, as newspaper or media resources have declined, we have become more poll-driven. I don't yeah. think we used to be, yeah. more so than the US or, or UK. I think that's a relatively recent phenomenon, say, last two decades or so. Um, you know, the Howard government, the Hawke and Keating governments, they were able to function despite poor polling. Yeah. It didn't cause John Howard to lose his leadership. Yeah. Arguably the media landscape and uh, things like social media platforms have changed that yeah. a lot as well, right? Yeah. So it's you know, sort of a lot more immediate news on yeah. things like polling, which is impacting that. Absolutely. And I think I think they see news poll and other surveys as a an easy story that yeah. doesn't require a lot of research and investigation. And so it's a lot cheaper than sending someone out to, to investigate policy, right, which is complex and, and expensive. Um, but I think it makes our political system poorer because we are just reaching for the easy story and we're not scrutinising uh, what the actual policy implications of decisions are. We're focusing on personality and, and treating uh, politics like horse racing, yeah. right, where who's ahead, who's behind, yeah. um, who's popular, who's not. And, and politics is much more meaningful than that. It, it affects all of our lives in important ways and we shouldn't just focus on the poll. So I think surveys are important, they're useful, but they, they don't tell you the whole story and I think we should use them the way they're designed to be used and not as an easy way to generate a story. Given uh, the perceptions of polling failure in the United States in 2016, uh, do you think that people are going to pay less attention to them in 2020 and the likes of you know, pollsters like Nate Silver are not going to have the power they used to hold going into this election season? No. Okay. <laughs> I think the temptation will still be there. Yep. Um, I hope that people are a little bit more circumspect. Um, they're not a crystal ball. They will be wrong in some ways. They may be more right than 16. Obviously, in, in 2012 and 2008, um, Nate Silver got it very right. He only got one state wrong in the 2008 presidential election. He got all 50 states right in 2012. Um, that may be the case again in 2020. But I think we need to remember these are estimates based on samples at a particular point in time. They're not a crystal ball. We can't see the future with surveys. So as long as they're treated with that sort of respect that they deserve, that is, they're important, but they're fallible, and they're not telling you the future in a, in a perfect and precise way, um, I think we'll be okay. But it is, I, I could see a lot of commentators falling into the trap of just seeing the headline number. And, and assuming that that's right yeah. and using that to drive easy coverage. 
One area it is going to be important undoubtedly is the Democratic primary contest. With debate starting later this month, who do you think is doing well sort of polling-wise at this stage and, and which segments of the US electorate do you think Democrats are going to be trying to appeal to most? Well, obviously Biden, Joe Biden, the former vice president under Barack Obama, is doing very well at the moment. And so is Bernie Sanders, who ran against Hillary Clinton in the 2015-16 primaries. Yep. Uh, I think a lot of that's a function of name recognition. Mm-hmm. They're well-known politicians. Joe Biden was vice president for eight years. He'd been a member of Congress for decades before that. Uh, he's got a very high name recognition. People know who he is, and he's quite a likable guy. Yeah, He's doing uh, really well with African-American and Latino voters as well, I've noticed in some of those polls. Yes, and I suspect that's his connection to Barack Obama. Right, okay. So, so he and Obama had a very good relationship. They probably had one of the, the better president-vice president relationships in recent decades. They seem to work very well together. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, some of Obama's popularity with those groups is is coming off on Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie Sanders obviously also built went from relative obscurity, even though he'd been around for a long time, to high name recognition in 2015 and 2016 when he was the only serious opposition to Hillary Clinton's yeah. nomination as Democratic candidate. Uh, so I think both of those men are, are you know, trading off the fact that they, people already know who they are. They know a lot about them. They know roughly what they stand for or who they are. Not necessarily in great detail, but enough to decide I like that person or not. Yeah. Um, so many of the other candidates are having to build their name recognition almost from scratch, the same way uh, Bernie Sanders obviously did to a certain extent last time around, and that's a disadvantage. It's hard for someone with very little national name recognition to win a primary. It's not impossible. Yeah. Bill Clinton did it in 1992. He, he came up as a relatively obscure governor of a relatively small state, Arkansas, and won the Democratic nomination in a crowded field. Um, so it's possible. But it has the, an impact on campaign financing, I imagine, as well, right? Without that yeah. kind of name recognition, it's very hard to get off the ground with with donations. Yeah, it makes everything hard. Yeah. Um, although some of the more obscure candidates still are doing very well with um, campaign finance. So Beto O'Rourke, for instance, yeah. uh, doing quite well. Some of the other candidates as well, raising a fair bit of money. But it is an uphill battle when people don't know who you are. because yeah. you. And this is why Donald Trump did well last time, right? Because he came into the the race with most Americans knowing something about him. Yeah. They at the very least knew he was a su- successful businessman, and I'm doing air quotes for, the, for, our, <laughs> yeah. for our viewers for those at listening home. at home. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a wealthy man who ran a big business, and so people he was seen as a, as a successful businessman, um, and he had high name recognition. So he didn't have to define himself. So most candidates have to spend a lot of the campaign not only attacking their opponents and outlaying policy, but actually define themselves in the mind of the average voter. If you can go into the race already having a positive definition of yourself in the public imagination, that's the first step already done and you right. can focus on the other things. Yeah. So um, so Biden and, Sa- and Sanders have a, an advantage there, but this could also be the high point for them. I could imagine the fact that a lot of their popularity at the moment is just purely driven by the fact that people know who they are already. Uh, and it could all be all downhill from here as they, you know, they're, they're, they're out the front, so they're probably going to suffer from attacks from the other candidates, right? If if you're one of the other candidates that has some chance of winning but is behind those two, your best chance of winning is to tear down the two up front. And obviously Joe Biden has a lot of baggage. Bernie Sanders is a self-styled Democratic Socialist or Social Democrat. Um, the, the word socialist is there, which can be a negative in certain segments of the community. Um, and they're both very old and they're both white and male in a, in a, in a party that is becoming increasingly um, 
Latino and African American and female, yeah. um, these could this could be baggage. It could help them in some respects, but it can also be baggage. Arguably, also a, a mood for change to something different, right? Something far removed from this idea of sort of legacy or just sort of yeah, dynasty yeah. politics, right? So th- there is definitely this sort of sentiment out there that people are looking for something, something new. Well, Democrats certainly. Yes. Um, it's an increasingly diverse party coalition, and I think a lot of Democrats will want a leadership team that reflects that diversity. So so if one of those two did win, I would expect that they would nominate either, I think, a racial minority or a female or both, someone like Kamala Harris, for instance, yeah, as, their, yeah. as their running mate. Um, but, but And that Kamala's another possible um, serious contender. She's an, a, a relatively young compared to Sanders and Biden, African-American woman from California, so yep. a big state with a lot of fundraisers. Um, but the problem, her, her problem is her baggage... Uh, as a former um, prosecutor, yeah, and attorney general, uh, yeah, yeah, she she was quite tough uh, on on, for instance, um, disadvantaged parents who weren't sending their kids, making sure their kids went to school, um, which could be used against her potentially. But a lot of politics is about sort of image and values, not necessarily concrete policy. So if she could be seen as sort of the heir to the Obama coalition, which is where Biden, I think, is trying to position himself as because of his uh, closeness to the Obama presidency, uh, his proximity to it and his, his part in it. But um, obviously Kamala could arguably be the next generation of that yep. constituency. Um, so that's probably where she'll aim. And then we've got Elizabeth Warren, who arguably on policy is the strongest candidate. She's got an incredibly um, well-developed policy platform. But as I just said, policy doesn't actually necessarily matter that much. Yeah. Um, her, her task will be convincing uh, likely Democratic primary voters that, A, she will champion the sort of things they want and, B, that she can beat Donald Trump. Um, I think on A, she's probably uh, got a reasonable chance there. Her policy platform is more progressive than the traditional Democratic platform but not so far left that it seems completely unrealistic and it's well thought through and and she, you know, she, she says she's a capitalist She's not a socialist. She believes in free markets, but she also believes in making sure that people have a reasonable chance at living a good life and and using the government to, you know, reduce some of the inequalities that capitalism creates. Her problem might be that she's not necessarily seen as someone that can beat Donald Trump. She's one of the few serious candidates that doesn't look great in head-to-head polling against Trump right now. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. As I said before, polls are not perfect predictors of the future, and we don't know what a, a Warren-Trump head-to-head will look like in the end. But if she's trying to sell herself as someone that, A, will deliver what Democrats want and, B, win, win the presidency, which you've got to do to deliver the goods... That doesn't help her right now. No. You mentioned uh, socialism or socialists before. Uh, one area the USSC did uh, some polling on recently was attitudes to socialism in Australia and the United States. Uh, that's obviously a word we've seen thrown around a lot in the United States with this sort of surge in the progressive arm of the Democratic Party. Let's have a quick listen to some of that debate. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. Do you think that the future of the Democratic Party is socialism? Well, I believe that in a moral and and wealthy America, no person should be too poor to live. It was more socialism, more pacifism, more weakness, and a whole lot less constitution. They actually had a discussion about getting rid of capitalism. I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, I'm a capitalist, you know? I think Donald Trump wakes up with that exactly. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I mean, he may. But do you think the future of the party is more Bernie? If I am elected president, 
we will have a nation in which all people have health care as a right, whether Trump likes it or not. We are going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We are going to raise the minimum wage to at least 15 bucks an hour. And whether Trump likes it or not, when I talk about human rights, you know what that also means? It means that our kids and grandchildren have the human right to grow up in a planet that is healthy and habitable. Sean, what's some of the big takeaways you found on that study on uh, attitudes to socialism? Yeah, well, we decided earlier in the year we really wanted to run this survey um, on socialism because it is something that Americans and American politicians are talking about a bit more in recent years. So ever since Bernie Sanders uh, bid for the the Democratic nomination for the presidential election in 2015 and 2016, kicked off... uh, it stopped being quite the dirty word it used to be. And and some members of the Democratic Party started to call themselves socialists or democratic socialists or social democrats and and argued that, you know, capitalism was broken and and some kind of new system was needed to make it fairer and, and give people better opportunities. So uh, Simon Jackman and myself decided we should ask Americans and Australians uh, about socialism. So so before we asked them questions about whether they liked it, though, or, or, or about specific policies, which a lot of surveys have done, we wanted to know first what the word actually meant to voters. Because you yeah. can ask people, do you like socialism? Or do you think socialism is a good thing? Or do you think we should have more socialism? Yeah. Uh, or so will socialism make Australia or America a better country, make it fairer? But until we know what they mean by the word socialism, those questions don't necessarily tell us much. Okay. So we actually allowed our respondents, who we asked through a YouGov survey of 1,000 voters in both countries, what the word actually meant to them. Right. Uh, so a definition. Yeah, yeah. And they could type anything in they wanted. Okay. And so some of them just said, I don't know, yep. or bad was, I think, one of the more succinct answers. Right. Or good for me was another one. Right. Uh, but, but another one wrote like several pages okay. of essay. <laughs> Right. On socialism, okay. they really got into it, which was great. Yeah. Um, so, so we wanted we looked at that, and um, one thing that really stuck out at us was Americans were much more able than Australians to provide a definition. Okay. So, so about three quarters of Americans could provide some kind of definition. Now, those definitions could be as simple as like bad or good, yeah, um, or, or, or thieves, you know, yeah. Um, but at least they could provide some kind of uh, semi-meaningful yep. definition. Well, it's only just over half for Australians. Um, with a with a large number of Australians in particular, thinking it meant either social media, so Facebook, oh, right. okay. Twitter, Instagram, okay. or socialising with their friends. Right. I, I take it they're young respondents to the survey. Though, Disproportionately. Okay. Some older ones, but yep. yes. But one thing we found that was really interesting, and then this was different in, in the two countries, was although often there's a criticism that young people are the ones that want socialism and they want it because they don't understand what it is, on public ownership of, of the economy, on almost every part of the economy we asked about, older voters wanted public ownership more than younger voters. Okay. And often the gap was as big as 20%. Wow. So on a lot of these things, roads, rail, um, buses, airports, it was older voters by a large margin, so over 65s wanting right. wanting the government and the or the public to own and operate big sections of the economy. The younger voters actually see more free market than older voters. 
Okay. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much for your insights today and for uh, stopping by once again. Happy to be here. Thanks, Drew. Thanks also this week to the Bubamara Brass Band, Dry Tachyon, Kevin McLeod and Ketzer for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. Catch you next week. 